All right. Thank you, Beth, for leading us in prayer. Uh, Beth is married to Steve. Steve and Beth Shook, and I have been, uh, I've been grateful to get to know them over the last couple of years. They've been a, a tremendous blessing in my life. Hey, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 13. John chapter 13. If you don't have a, a copy of the scripture, you can uh, grab the one in the pew there, uh, and it's on page 900. John chapter 13, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 17. For those of you who do not know me, uh, my, my name is Cody Bishop. I'm married to Christian, and uh, we've been a part of this church family for a couple of years now, just a, just a little over two years. And uh, we've been uh, tremendously uh, blessed by being a part of this church family. And over the last uh, couple of months, maybe the last few, four, five, six months, there's been a lot of conversation uh, within the life of our church about uh, where we've been as a church in the recent past and, and even in the distant past. There's been conversation about where we are now. We're in transition, right? And there's been a lot of conversation uh, in where we're going. What direction are we headed as a church? And uh, one of the topics that, that comes up quite frequently is this idea of community, um, and, and community, as most of you know, uh, takes place um, primarily or large, in large part in the context of Foothills Group. So over the next couple of weeks, uh, Pastor David and myself will focus on this idea of community or w- what we might call as Christian fellowship. That's what Mark said in his testimony, Christian fellowship. And it is our goal to persuade everyone of their desperate need of Christian fellowship. And we know that this primarily takes place within, at least in our church, in the context of Foothills Group. And uh, as a matter of fact, um, next week, August 11th, immediately following both services, we will have our Group Connect event. That will take place in the foyer and on the patio. And so you can come with an idea in mind of what schedule or what group might best fit you and your family for the season that you're in now. So we encourage you to do that. Now you'll notice that my, I have titled my sermon, Unacceptable Love or Love That Is Unacceptable. Let me explain what I mean by that. I do not mean to use this phrase, unacceptable love, as a love that we are unable to accept, that we're incapable uh, of accepting. I do not mean it in that way. And I do not mean it in a way uh, that is unacceptable to God, that it somehow displeases God. That's not the way that I'm using this phrase. Rather, what I mean by using this phrase, unacceptable love, is a love that is unaccepted by the world, a love that is objectionable, a love that may even be thought of as scandalous. This is the type of love that Jesus exemplified in his life and ministry. And he certainly exemplifies it in the passage that we are going to study this morning. This type of love was unacceptable in the, in the world and in the culture that Jesus lived in. And we know that it certainly a love that is unacceptable in our own culture. So what exactly does this look like, this love look like that I'm suggesting is unacceptable to the world? Well, why don't we uh, begin to try to discover that in the word of God. But before we do that, let me just pray for us one last time before we jump in to the text. Father, 
I am grateful for this church family. I am grateful to hear uh, Mark Pierce's testimony of how uh, you had worked in his life 20 years ago. And through hearing the word preached by Pastor Dennis, he was convinced that his baptism uh, needed to take place after conversion. So we are grateful for the work in his life. And Father, I pray that there will be more uh, learning through studying your word and the preaching of the word. And Father, I pray that you would do a work on us this morning, that we would open our hearts and open, open our minds to what you would teach us here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get into verses 1 through 17, let's try to set some of the context, the background of what's going on in John's gospel. In in John's accounts of the life and ministry in Jesus, we know that his primary desire for recording the things that he did was so that people would believe that this man named Jesus was and is the Christ. He desired that people would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. John records the things that he did so that people would believe in the name of Jesus and receive eternal life. And so he structures his gospel accordingly. He begins in chapter one by saying that Jesus is the eternal word that has come down from heaven and taken on flesh and dwelt among us. And then he begins in chapter two and all the way through chapter 12 of giving proof that Jesus is the son of God. He records for us seven signs or miracles that Jesus had accomplished over a three-year period of time that would prove that he really is indeed the Son of God. And in these chapters, we see Jesus moving throughout Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee, performing signs and teaching and interacting with thousands of people, both Jews and Gentiles. And now, John beginning here in chapter 13, focuses, he narrows his attention on Jesus' last day, his last hours on earth with his disciples. And he begins with the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Look with me at verse 1. John writes, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, right at the outset, John sets the theme of Jesus' life and ministry up to this point, a theme that would continue throughout all eternity. He states, Jesus, having loved his own thus far, he loved them to the end. Jesus loves his people. His love is unconditional. His love is is eternal. His love is more than we could ever imagine. And as we know, we know that his love for us, his people, was authenticated in his death on the cross. And our story this morning literally and metaphorically describes Jesus' love displayed in his death on the cross. His love is scandalous. His love is unacceptable. Look at verse 2. John writes, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments 
And taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now picture the scene. It was a Thursday night, and just like the last 1,400 years in Jewish history, the the Jewish people would uh, prepare the Passover meal to eat together. But little did the disciples know that this would be the last Passover meal that Jesus would spend with them. Little did they know that this would be the last Thursday night that Jesus would eat and dine with them. Little did they know that this would be Jesus' last night before he tasted death on the cross. You see, Jesus knew that his hour had come. He knew that he would be betrayed by Jesus and offered up for the sins of God's people. And you see, we can't rightly understand the implications of Jesus washing the disciples' feet if we don't see that he did this with the cross in view. When we read through this story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, we must keep the cross at the very forefront of our minds. We know that it was at the forefront of Jesus' mind. We know that in these last hours, as he thought about and contemplated what he was going to face, he was burdened. Imagine the scene. They're eating. They're eating supper, the last supper. And as they're eating, John records that the devil has already entered into the betrayer, Judas Iscariot. And Jesus, knowing this, along with knowing that his hour had come, and along with knowing that the Father had given him all things, Jesus rose from supper. Imagine it. He lays aside his outer garments. Literally, he removes his outer clothes And he takes a towel and he ties it around his waist. And then he pours some water into a basin or a bucket. And then what does he do? Jesus does the unthinkable, the objectionable, the countercultural, the unacceptable. He began to wash his disciples' feet and wipe them down with the towel that he'd wrapped around himself. This was considered highly inappropriate, highly unacceptable. Foot washing was designated for the lowest of slaves, the lowest of lows. And the disciples knew this. In great distress, they must have shouted, Jesus, what are you doing? This is unacceptable. And of course, we know that's exactly what they did, at least one of them. They didn't know what was happening. They didn't understand the implications of Jesus washing their feet. What about you? Put yourself onto the scene. Place yourself there that night. Can you imagine the horror you must have felt to see Jesus, your Lord and Master, disrobe himself of his title, the Son of God, strip himself of the status the Christ, and then consequently place himself at your feet with a bucket of water and a towel. And then humbly grabbing the first foot and beginning to wipe the crud and the scum and the filth off of your feet. Off of the first one 
and then off of the next one, we would be mortified. We would be shocked beyond all measure. We would cry out in a panic, no, Lord, do not wash my feet. This is unacceptable. That's exactly what Peter did. Look at verse 6. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And so Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. You see, when Jesus approaches the leader of the 12, Simon Peter, with the water in the towel, Peter anxiously anxiously declares, never, never will you wash my feet, Lord. You see, Peter, as well as the other disciples, they knew. They knew who Jesus was. They knew that he was the Christ. They knew that he was the son of the living God. And Peter could not accept his Lord stooping down to wash his feet. It was totally unacceptable to Peter. Now with that in mind, let's let's rewind back into our story just a little bit. We have been uh, looking at Jesus literally washing their feet. But now let's try to examine the words and the teachings that Jesus gives to us here. We, we must observe what Jesus is doing. You see, the story goes from Jesus literally washing the disciples' feet to him teaching them a spiritual truth. Jesus is teaching them theology, and he's doing it in a way that is very typical of him, right? He's metaphorically explaining a spiritual reality. He is literally washing his friend's feet. Peter attempts to reject that reject his act of loving service and Jesus responds with a spiritual truth he tells Peter if I do not wash you Peter you have no share with me I believe Jesus is no longer referring to literal foot washing Jesus is talking about what he will soon accomplish on the cross now I'm asking you to check me on this I'm I'm, I'm maybe saying something that you've not thought previously before this morning and so it's, it's our responsibility to check one another. And so I'm asking you to follow along with me, engage with me as I try to substantiate uh, my claim. I'm asserting that Jesus went from literally washing the disciples' feet to teaching them a theology, a theology of sanctification. We just heard uh, from that video somebody using the word sanctification. What does that mean? Well, in its most basic form, it just means to be made holy or to make holy, to consecrate, to set apart, and in particular, uh, to set apart for God's own possession, holy. Let's look back down at verse 5. So we're rewinding back in the story to see what Jesus is teaching. The text says in verse 5 that Jesus began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He was truly and literally washing their feet. And then in verse 6, he crouches down at the feet of Peter. And Peter exclaims, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, 
but afterward you will understand. Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm doing, Peter. Well, of course Peter understands that Jesus has a wet towel and he's wiping the filth and the dirt off his feet. He understands that Jesus is literally washing his feet and that's why he responds with, you shall never wash my feet. And what does Jesus respond with? Jesus judicially declares, Peter, if I do not wash you, then you have no share with me. Peter, if I do not clean you, then you officially do not belong to me. We have no fellowship. And what's Peter do? He frantically replies, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter's response in faith is, clean me, Lord. Save me. And then Jesus renders back quite an odd response. He says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Now, let me read that again. It's, it's, it's quite an odd statement uh, in the scenario. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus isn't talking about a literal cleansing. He is talking about a spiritual cleansing. He is talking about sanctification. And now we mostly understand that term sanctification as a, as a process, something that uh, is ongoing. And certainly that is an aspect of a Christian's life. They ought to be growing in their holiness over their life. But there is another aspect of sanctification being taught here as well. And both aspects are here in our passage this morning. And these are often referred to as, as a positional sanctification and a progressive sanctification. Now, I'm not trying to get technical, but just for the, the sake of knowing, positional sanctification is just a position that you hold. You have a status. You are holy. And progressive sanctification is just something that you progress in. There's a process, there's an ongoingness to being sanctified. So when you receive Christ, in that moment, you are made holy. You have been sanctified. You have been spiritually cleansed. And I believe that this is what Jesus is saying here to his disciples when he says, the one who has had a bath already is already completely clean. Do you see that? Now, let me try to prove this even further. Look back down at verse 10. We just said that, that we just noted Jesus' response to Peter. The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And now he's saying to Peter, and really he addresses all his disciples. He says, you all are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Now think with me, he just washed all his disciples' feet, including Judas. And now he's saying, all of you are clean, except for one of you. All of you have been made holy. All of you have been sanctified, except for one of you, the betrayer, Judas. All of you, except for one, has been sanctified by my atoning blood. The disciples have been cleaned. Jesus is saying to Peter and his disciples, just as I have removed my outer clothes, so too I have removed myself from heaven and come to earth. And just as I have wrapped a towel around my waist, 
so too I have wrapped my divineness with a human body. I, son of God, became flesh. And just as I have taken this towel and removed the dirt from the soles of your feet, so too I have removed the stain of sin, of your sin. And just as I have poured this water into a basin to cleanse you from the journey, so too I will pour out my blood on the cross to cleanse you from your depravity. I will cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. Jesus isn't just cleaning feet. He is parabolically acting and metaphorically teaching what his work on the cross would accomplish. Jesus' death on the cross would cleanse his people from sin and shame, making them holy and blameless unto God. Jesus' foot washing is a picture of his sanctifying work on the cross. And at first, what does Peter do? He rejects this idea, this idea of Jesus cleaning him. And so would we. Not only would we initially reject Jesus washing our feet literally, but aren't we distraught when we think about the sinless Savior taking on our sin, cleansing us from our sin? Don't we want to clean ourselves up first before we come to God? Isn't that our natural inclination to do? Consider this. When you think of your sin, when you think of your evil thoughts, when you ponder the wickedness of your desires, when you reflect on the vileness of your actions, when you realize the sinfulness of sin against the holiness of God, and then you think about a loving God, a sinless Savior wrapping himself in the robes of your sin, you say, no way, no way, Lord, no way will you bear my guilt for my sin. No way will you take on my shame. See, we're ashamed of our sin. We want to clean ourselves up before we come to God. But when Jesus responds with, if I do not clean you, then you have no share with me. If I am not the one who cleanses you, then you have no fellowship with me. And then like Peter, we must cry out, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. You see, there's no other way to receive eternal life with God except through Jesus. If you want God, you must call out, wash me, Lord. Cleanse me from my sin. Sanctify me with your atoning blood. You cannot clean yourself up. We cannot clean ourselves up. We cannot make ourselves holy. It's God who makes us holy. And if your response to God's love is utter dependency and repentance, he will save you. He will sanctify you. He will make you into a new creation, holy and blameless unto himself. This is foundational to our understanding of the gospel of Christ. God's anger and wrath burns against sinful humanity. And the only escape, the only way out is through being saved by the sacrificial atoning blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as he dies in our place on the cross. If you are not trusting in Jesus this morning, 
If you're not trusting in Jesus to save you from divine wrath, I'm asking you this morning within your heart, cry out, Lord, cleanse me from my sin with your atoning blood. Now, look back at verse 10. What is this business of Jesus saying? The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. He tells his disciples, you guys are clean. You're completely clean. You don't need to be washed except for your feet. Again, I am convinced that Jesus is teaching us about sanctification. First, this idea of positional sanctification that you are being, you have been made holy at the moment of conversion, the moment that you have come to Christ, the moment that you have been born again. And then now, a progressive sanctification, a way that you will continue to pursue holiness. Because our sanctification is not just a status. It's not just something we receive when we receive Christ. It is something that we pursue throughout the entirety of our Christian life. Yes, we are holy in Christ, but yet we still sin. And that is why Jesus says, yes, you are clean except for your feet. Your feet must continue to be cleaned. Why? Because you sin and I sin and we all sin. The one who has been bathed, the one who has been immersed in the blood of Jesus is already clean. Their sins have been paid for and forgiven. They are clean. They have been sanctified. They have been given a status of holy. And because they are sanctified, because they have been given this status of holy, they now pursue holiness. This is ongoing. This is a process. That is why Jesus says we need our feet washed. So through remembering who we are, holy, and by pursuing holiness, God sanctifies us. Let me try to hammer this home a little bit further with an illustration. So my last name is Bishop. You guys know that. I have two brothers. Obviously, their last name is Bishop as well. And I have a father whose last name is Bishop. And he has a, a brother with the last name Bishop. And my uncle has a son the last name of Bishop. And so when we were growing up, we heard... You are a bishop, right? And when we were just, me and my brothers, just kind of doopty doing along in life with no purpose, no drive, no sense of what we're doing, my dad would snatch us up and he would say what? You are a bishop. Act like a bishop. Stand tall, be proud, walk confidently, so on and so forth. I'm sure most of you can identify with that. Or maybe uh, if you're a Republican, what do you do? You don't just vote Republican. You identify yourself with Republican views, right? You have this worldview, and so you act like a Republican. You vote Republican. And the same if you're a Democrat. If you're a Democrat, you have a Democratic worldview. You don't just say, I'm Democrat. You live like a Democrat. You vote like a Democrat, right? Who you are defines what you do. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you are a follower of me, if you have been born again, if you are a Christian, then you're already clean. Now, because you are clean, keep yourself clean. Keep your feet washed. So this compels us then to ask the question, how in the world do we keep our feet washed? Well, I want to suggest that this will most effectively take place in the context of Christian fellowship. 
It does not replace the Sunday gathering or the preaching of the word of God. No way. But it reinforces what happens on the Sunday morning. Look down at verse 12 as I try to uh, prove this a little bit further. Verse 12, John records, When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You see that? Have I've washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So you see Jesus comes back onto the scene and he's reclining with his disciples and he explains further this model of unacceptable love. This model of unacceptable love that Judas would outright reject. A love that Peter began to reject. This unacceptable love is the model of Christian living. And it is this. We are to humbly stoop down out of a love for one another and wash one another's feet. And I do not mean literally. I do not believe that Jesus is giving us or teaching on an ordinance of literal foot washing. I believe he is continuing with the teaching on sanctification. In one sense, those who are in Christ have been sanctified. They have been made holy. Jesus has cleansed them. But in another sense, the Bible tells us to pursue sanctification and grow in personal holiness. Well, how do you do this? How do you keep your feet washed here at Foothills Baptist Church? And I'm suggesting that one of the primary ways that we as a church will grow in, in, in holiness is by immersing ourselves into the fellowship of our church family, and in particular, Foothills groups. And by so doing, we will participate in one another's sanctification. And, and what I mean in joining a Foothills group, I don't mean just an event that takes place on a certain night of the week for a couple of hours. What I mean is, is committing yourselves to the people within the group in a, in a supernatural way, with a supernatural love. And you might think, that sounds a little bit difficult, and that sounds a little bit messy, and you would be correct. But that does not negate the fact that we are called to follow our Lord's example and be thoroughly immersed in the process of helping one another pursue holiness. I love what Pastor Kent Hughes says in regards to this text. He explains that Christians should be people of the towel. I love that. Christians ought to be people of the towel, meaning Christians should be willing to get their hands dirty as we help one another pursue holiness. Jeremy Lineman, in his book, Life-Giving Groups, captures this biblical truth well. He states this, our being and becoming like Christ, so there it is, positional and progressive sanctification, our being and becoming like Christ, more holy, is not an individual pursuit. It is deeply personal, yet 
it does not happen primarily in a Jesus and me context. Instead, the best possible place of spiritual formation is the local church. And more specifically, in a small, regular, committed group of believers pursuing the same end, which is holiness. Oftentimes, this this work is taxing emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually. It certainly was for Jesus, wasn't it? But he did it anyway because he loved in a way that was radical. The love he modeled was unacceptable in his culture, but it was acceptable to God. It was pleasing to his heavenly father. When a church family is radical in their love for one another, the world will think we are weird. Yes, we are. Uh, We will be labeled as uh, irrelevant or, or just crazy maybe unacceptable but we ought to embrace this we ought to embrace getting our feet washed and washing the feet of other Christians we ought to joyfully participate in one another's sanctification we ought to humbly plunge ourselves into the life and community and the fellowship of a foothills group why just because Cody says I don't think so that would be bad Look at what Jesus says in verse 17. If you know these things, if you know these things that I've just taught you, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do what Jesus has commanded you to do. So let me ask you, church family, what's preventing you from participating in the sanctification of other Christians here in our church family? What's preventing you from stooping down to lift others up, putting off sin and putting on Christ? What's preventing you from receiving divine blessing? And generally speaking, and I'm including myself, as I think about the life of our church, I believe the number one reason that we as a church do not participate or are at least reluctant to do so The reason we don't do this is because of our time. Our time is precious, isn't it? We are not likely willing, or at least we are reluctant, to do do this because we are busy people. We are busy, right? Everyone I know in this room is busy people. We're busy with our careers. We're busy with school. We're we're busy with sports. We're busy with arts. We're busy with gymnastics. We're busy with home projects. We're busy with planning our vacation and taking time off. We're busy with screen time. And the list goes on, right? These are the things that will prevent us from intentionally helping and participating in one another's pursuit of holiness. So let me ask you. Are you willing? Are you willing to stoop low in order to lift others up for the sake of personal and congregational holiness? How scandalous would it be? How unacceptable would it be for us to remove and make time for the holiness of ourselves and for others? How unacceptable it would be for us to remove some things out of our lives that are unnecessary to make time to pursue the things that are essential, the things that will have an eternal impact. 
it would be difficult. But imagine, imagine with me what it would look like if our church got serious about the call to wash one another's feet. Imagine what it would look like if we joyfully participated in one another's pursuit of holiness. Imagine what it would look like if we were all involved in the life and community of a Foothills group. And like I said, I do not mean just an event that takes place for a couple hours a week, but I mean a lifestyle. Now, I know I haven't touched on exactly what it looks like to serve and to love one another in this talk today in the sermon today but pastor david uh, next week will give more clarity on what that looks like so for now what i'm asking you to do is prayerfully consider joining a foothills group this semester and as you consider this as you consider this in prayer let us prepare our hearts to take the lord's supper Uh, the men will go and uh, grab the elements And you can wait there at the back, and Craig and his team, you guys can come up. Now, we just celebrated baptism, which is one of the ordinances, and now we're celebrating the Lord's Supper as a church family. So why do we do this? Well, the Lord's Supper is for those who have been sanctified. It is for those who have been made holy. It is for those who belong to God. And we do this to remember what Jesus has done for us, his atoning work on the cross, his sacrifice for our sins. And remember, we are to remember that we are holy. And we also do this to renew. It's a time of renewal. We're we're renewing our commitment to pursue personal holiness. And we're renewing our commitment to help others pursue personal holiness and we do this also to renew our commitment to Christ to make disciples of all the nations teaching them about all that Jesus has commanded us teaching them to obey it so that then they too would be holy unto God now I'm going to look at uh, Luke chapter 22 you can turn there with me if you like Luke chapter 22 verses 14 through 20 Now, as Luke records this, um, he's recording the same event um, that we just read in John. And he writes this, and, And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Men, you can go ahead and come forward. And as they're coming forward and passing that out, I'm asking you to reflect on your life. Are you pursuing personal holiness? Are you concerned with the holiness of others brothers and sisters in Christ here in our church family? Are you committed to the mission of Christ, which is to take the gospel to all the nations and people groups of the world? Take some time to reflect on this, and then we'll partake in a few minutes.
And Jesus took bread and we had, when he had given things, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm just going to encourage you to take a few more moments reflecting on your life and reflecting on what Jesus has done for you. Remember the gospel. If you're feeling a little discouraged about the time that you've not been able to give maybe to uh, other people and growing in holiness, that's not what makes you holy. What makes you holy is Jesus. So remember the gospel and that you are holy in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So take some time to remember that and then we'll take the cup. And likewise, Jesus said the cup, or the cup after they had eaten, saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's take you the cup.